and welcome back to KHN's What the Health. I'm Julie Rovner, Chief Washington Correspondent for Kaiser Health News. I'm joined by some of the best and smartest health reporters in Washington. We're taping this week on Thursday, July 1st at 10 a.m. As always, news happens fast and things might have changed by the time you hear this. So here we go. Today we are joined via video conference by Joanne Cannon of Politico. Hi, everybody. Sarah Carlin-Smith of The Pink Sheet. Good morning, Julie. And Kimberly Leonard of Insider. Happy to be here. Later in this episode, we'll play my interview with Marshall Allen of ProPublica. If that name is familiar, it's because Marshall has written many, many of our extra credit stories about the wild way the United States healthcare system works or doesn't. And he has a new book called Never Pay the First Bill and Other Ways to Fight the Healthcare System and Win. But before that, this week's news. I want to start this week with the Affordable Care Act. The Department of Health and Human Services put out a proposed rule for the 2022 open enrollment season, which is usually a pretty routine affair. But this rule, assuming it becomes permanent in the coming weeks, has some pretty big changes in it. Actually, it would restore a lot of things about the enrollment process that the Trump administration changed, including lengthening the enrollment window by a month, so basically 10 weeks instead of six Also, marketplaces would have to refer consumers to navigators after enrollment to help them activate and use their policies. And the rule would eliminate an option for states to do away with the exchanges altogether. Uh, It would also create a new special enrollment period outside the regular open enrollment for some low-income people to be able to enroll in zero premium plans they might be eligible for. Right now, those people can only enroll with everybody else during the regular open enrollment period. And the rule would end a requirement that insurers send separate bills for abortion coverage, a policy that we've talked about that has caused a lot of confusion. Now, enrollment is currently still open until August because of the pandemic, and we've seen more than a million people sign up for coverage. A lot of that is because of the new subsidies that we've talked about that are temporary. But do we think that changes like those proposed in this rule will also help boost coverage? I think one of the biggest ones is opening the special enrollment period for people who are making less than 150% of the federal poverty level. I mean, that's a new piece that we haven't really seen before. Um, and people newly qualify for such generous coverage thanks to you know the stimulus package that President Biden signed into law. But I really think that it could help people who are in states that haven't expanded Medicaid because they really don't have any options for coverage whatsoever. They sort of are in this gap where they have a low income and they can't sign up for coverage that they can afford. So this is a way to really help those people get coverage at any time during the year, it sounds like, not just during this open enrollment period. So that's a big change that could you know, boost coverage throughout the year and also help people who are sort of falling in and out of certain jobs um, as the economy is recovering. Yeah, I've, I've seen a lot of discussion this week about what to do about those people in the Medicaid gap, as it's called, because of course, when the ACA passed, uh, Congress assumed that every state would expand Medicaid because at that point they were required to. Um, So people below 100% of poverty aren't eligible for subsidies on the exchanges um, because in theory they would have had Medicaid. But now a lot of people are saying that, you know, if you have low income, you can, you know, you have to estimate your income anyway. And maybe you want to just estimate your income a little bit above the poverty line. And then you could get these zero premium plans. And that would, you know, it might be gaming the system a little bit, but 
Congress always intended for these people to be able to have low-cost coverage. It's also true that people are right around the poverty line. Their income actually, it's called churn. It does fluctuate, yeah. It's really hard for them to know if they're going to be 90% of the federal poverty line or 110%. I mean, so you can make a really sort of good faith. I mean, our income might vary a little bit year to year, but in that, right around the poverty level, people's income fluctuates a lot week to week, month to month, year to year. So it's a reality that they are in this income bracket or close to this income bracket. And as Julie just pointed out, the intention was to cover everybody, not everybody except some of the poorest people in America. So there's still a lot of grappling with that gap. There are, I believe, 12 states that have still not enacted Medicaid expansion. People who have no other choices other than cobbling together various, you know, free or very community health center kind of care, subsidized care. It was not what the Affordable Care Act was designed to do. Somebody else might want to chime in, and then I have another thought I could share later about sort of a bigger picture. Well, I actually have sort of a a bigger picture sort of separately. Um, The administration is reminding people that under the terms of the American Rescue Plan, the COVID relief stimulus bill that passed this spring, starting July 1st, which is today, anyone who in 2021 has received or been approved to receive unemployment is eligible for a zero premium silver plan on healthcare.gov for the rest of the year. And if your income is low, you can get help with the cost sharing as well. So some people are calling this sort of the free platinum plan. Now, this is part of the increased subsidies that expire after the end of 2022, which Democrats very much want to make permanent. I'm wondering if 2022 might be the first time since the Affordable Care Act passed that it could be an electoral help rather than a hindrance for Democrats going into the midterm elections. Until now, the Republicans have been the ones, you know, running on the Affordable Care Act saying they want to get rid of it. But the Democrats have now made the Affordable Care Act a lot more generous for a lot more people. I think it helped in 2018. It helped the Democrats get back the House after the year of the failed year of repeal and replace that the law turned out to be not wildly popular, but popular enough that nobody really, that the American public didn't overall, did not really want it to go away. So, so yes, I think it's becoming more of an asset. And your question does tie into the, the other point I was going to make, which is it's 10 years of political attack on the ACA. A lot of what the Biden administration is doing right now is making it logistically easier, bringing down barriers, making it a, a simpler process to sign up, not so many deadlines, nothing you have to, it, it just facilitating coverage. What I haven't really seen them do yet, I mean, I think they're doing it a little bit, and I think that the million extra people being covered shows it, but I don't really think they've sort of successfully done undone some of the messaging damage of 10 years, which is the Republicans depicted this as the Unaffordable Care Act. Now, as we've talked many, many times, American health care is ridiculously expensive. I'm not saying that the ACA plans are cheap, but what has been lost in this conversation is the ACA didn't make, is not why health care in the U.S. is expensive. And what gets lost in the political conversation is for low-income people, for working poor, for people just above the poverty line, there are tons of subsidies. There are subsidies for your premium. There are subsidies for some of your care and deductibles, cost-sharing subsidies, even though they've been baked in in a new way, which we will spare people today. For people really in need, it is not so unaffordable. And I don't think that message has totally gotten through yet. Yes, we have a health care cost problem in the United States. It doesn't mean that the ACA is not a good deal for many people who are not currently covered. 
And I think a lot of people, I mean, that's, I think one of the messaging issues, and I did, I saw an ad, I think on TV um, this week uh, about signing up for, for coverage. I think people who have gone in the past and decided that it was too expensive, I have a friend who said, oh, no, I can't afford it. And I'm like, you really need to go back and look again, because it is much cheaper for a lot of people now. And I think that message is still sort of getting lost in the everything else that's going on infrastructure debate. Yeah. No, I mean, I just think that there's a lot of damage in the political discourse. It doesn't mean that the ACA doesn't have problems and it doesn't mean mean that there are not things that have to be fixed or fine tuned or revisited the way we revisit all of our social programs. I'm not saying it should be frozen and and amber and kept that it's perfect. It's not. But there's help for people that people may, may not realize. And also, you know, Julie mentioned is the saying states cannot eliminate their exchanges. That's really important because the prior administration, the Trump administration on the way out the door, basically let Georgia opt out of the ACA. They didn't quite call it that, but it was sort of a de facto dismantling in one state. And that is clearly not going to happen, although there's some technical steps before it is completely voided, but it's not going to happen. Yeah, and we should remind people that this is still a proposed rule and it has to to be finalized, although it's for the coming open enrollment, so it will be finalized pretty quickly. All right, well, let us move on. Um, As I say every week, COVID isn't done with us yet, uh, although more things are opening up. The Delta variant, which is the version of the virus that tore through India this spring, is now spreading wildly around the globe. And while people who are fully immunized appear pretty protected, the variant is starting to spread here in the U.S. among unvaccinated vaccinated populations. Um, Israel, which had widespread vaccination coverage long before we did, has reinstated indoor mask requirements and they're being encouraged in Los Angeles County. It seems that public health officials are walking quite the tightrope here, suggesting that mask wearing depends on your personal risk tolerance and the caseload in your community. My county of over a million people uh, reported a total of nine cases yesterday. But this could turn into a big mess here in the U.S. It already is in places like Missouri, right? Yeah, I mean, there are large portions of the country that do not have high vaccination rates. We're still a minority of the eligible population for vaccination are vaccinated And right now, the CDC is giving different guidance than the World Health Organization regarding indoor mask wearing. And while there are some differences between the U.S., particularly in pockets with high vaccination rates, than maybe the globe where lots of countries have not had much access to vaccine, you're already seeing a lot of questions about what is the true scientific answer here? What is politics? What is sort of the hesitancy to re-input restrictions on populations that have generally pushed back against them to begin with? And it seems like that may only get more controversial if we do start to have outbreaks of this variant. And Yeah, I mean, it just it feels like the timing is really bad here, just as the CDC was saying, yes, vaccinated people, go ahead, live your lives, everything's fine. Now we're starting to see this more communicable variant spreading, as it will, that's what viruses do. And I mean, most viruses, when they get more transmissible, get less severe, that does not seem to be the case with COVID. And I this one, I guess, could be called COVID-21. It seems increasingly possible that even vaccinated people can spread it, even if they're not going to get very sick. I can't imagine getting most people who have stopped wearing masks back into them. Can you? I mean, I can see this being a just another giant frustration for public health and other policy officials. And the timing is really awkward because President Biden and you know his team have really 
pinpointed July 4th as sort of this new beginning um, or whatever you want to call it for the U.S. and kind of trying to move beyond COVID. And the reality is, I think it's maybe we're a little bit worse off than they thought we would be coming into this holiday, again, particularly in certain pockets of the U.S. with this variant. So it's not going to be quite the break free from COVID as they maybe hoped, which again, in reality, with the virus still impacting huge parts of the world, perhaps that was always a bit of an overpromise. But I think this current situation does conflict a bit with the messaging and kind of positive moment they were hoping to have. I feel like the the cruise ship industry is sort of a microcosm of this. They were just getting ready to start cruises again. And I think the very first cruise got delayed because there was an outbreak among the staff. <laughs> I mean, so far, there are breakthrough infections of Delta in vaccinated people, including people who have the mRNA vaccines, which are believed to be based on the data we have now. AstraZeneca might be pretty effective against Just say they're really good against Delta. Um, there are breakthrough infections. They don't tend to be serious disease. I mean, Israel's been tracking this. They have, they, they've been tracking things very well. And there are more illnesses, but, you know, their ICUs are not overflowing and, you know, there's not mass death. So They are in Missouri. But... Missouri isn't vaccinated the way, I mean, what's, what's the vaccination rate in Missouri? 40% or something? I don't know exactly. It's probably, uh, given the racial and ethnic and political pro-tile, pro- I can guess off the top of my head, it's 40-ish for adults. It's spreading really fast. And one of the problems, the way the Biden administration has talked about a 70 percent goal or, you know, now they're saying it's about 70 percent of people over 30 who've gotten one shot, at least one shot is not all that protective against Delta. You you need both. But that number is, you know, Sarah just mentioned that it's a, a national average doesn't mean anything or doesn't mean very much if you live in a community where only 25 percent of adults are vaccinated. And of course, children remain at risk. So kids under 12 can't get the vaccine yet. We've always expected even without Delta, we always expected in the best case scenario without Delta, we always expected outbreaks in parts of the country with a lower vaccination rate. And the, the challenge for public health would be how to contain them, how to, you know, it's the difference between a, a brush fire and a, a, you know, a forest fire. Yeah. And it's harder to contain with a fast spreading variant. So you might have multiple fires spreading in a country that has, you know, really sort of it's way ready to move on. The, you know, in many people's minds, the pandemic is over. Well, it's not. It's not over here and it's certainly not over in the rest of the world. Talking about this every week for weeks to come. Um, so this is a week where we get to revisit things we've already talked about in some cases that we haven't talked about for a while. But let us start with Adjuhelm, which we have talked about. That's the controversial and very expensive Alzheimer's drug that may or may not work, but which the FDA approved anyway last month. Two House committees, Oversight and Energy and Commerce, have announced they will investigate the approval. And a remarkable story in Stat News this week suggests that the drug's maker, Biogen, may have had a closer relationship with top FDA officials than is allowed under the rules. Sarah, what do you think congressional investigators are going to be looking for? I think one thing they're going to be looking for is sort of this wonky term called regulatory capture, um, is this phrase, which is basically you know, the FDA is a regulatory body. The idea is it's supposed to sort of be protecting the general public and, you know, ensuring companies are acting properly and in good faith. And, you know, they're sort of the protector between us and just a very free market where companies can market any drugs without assurance. And the issue here, and we sort of knew about this to some degree before the stat story, but the stat story, I think, really drove home how much more intense it was, this relationship between Biogen and the FDA and them really, instead of FDA sort of being the regulator that oversees what they're doing and a check on them, they were sort of this partner, um, really working with them and 
you know, doing everything possible to try and get this drug across the finish line. And that's not really the way Congress has set up FDA to work. So I think they'll probably really be trying to dive into those records and understand what was the relationship and what needs to be transformed potentially at the FDA to ensure there's more walls between industry and the regulator. Yeah. Now, of course, focus is turning towards Medicare, where nearly 6 million patients could be eligible for the drug at a cost to the program that could, in theory, nearly match the entire amount Medicare currently spends on injectable drugs delivered by physicians in their offices, which is how this drug will be obtained. Um, Even if it's only half a million patients were to get the drug, it would still cost more than the entire budget of the Centers for Disease Control. So what happens now at Medicare? Do they have to cover the drug? And do they have to pay Biogen sticker price. They don't have to cover it. They have a different process than FDA for sort of, you know, FDA's role is to look at safe and effective. Medicare looks at this terminology called reasonable and necessary. And while I would say most of the time for drugs, Medicare does pretty quickly kind of sign off on them. If FDA approves it, they don't do much for these sort of drugs that are administered by your doctor to negotiate price. It's kind of based on a set formula. In this case, though, I think it is likely and the HHS secretary has dropped a few hints that they may take a closer look at it. And they have options where they could specify very specific criteria for who gets the drug. Which the FDA didn't. Correct. So they could um, be more narrow in who they cover. Potentially, they could do some kind of demonstration or project to kind of use some leverage to try and get the costs down, although that might be a bit harder for them to do. So there is options. I would be pretty surprised if Medicare just sort of rubber stamps what the FDA did and doesn't try and control the population of who gets this and how much they pay a bit more. Because, I mean, stacked at this great infographic and you can kind of play around with it yourself. It's fun. You know, even if, you know, just 10% of the seniors with Alzheimer's take this drug, you're looking at almost the entire budget for Medicare spending in Part B on drugs right now. So yes, that's where that's where I got my numbers from that great infographic. you, You start playing around with their little bar. I mean, you see how problematic this is. And it'd be one thing if, you know, we knew this drug was a home run and was going to transform these people's lives. But we really don't know if it's going to offer any benefit to these patients with dementia right now. And that's the key problem. Joanne, you want to say something? I think they're racking their brains trying to figure out what to do with this at Medicare. And there's no head of Medicare yet. I, I think that they just know they have to come up with some kind of criteria, not just, you know, come on in, everybody. Um, I don't know what that's going to look like. I do. I have talked to people, and I'm sure that Sarah and Kimberly have too. I mean, they are grap- they, they are fig- trying to fig- they are going to have to figure this out. Um, you know what they do, how they define eligibility, how you know they define progress. I mean, it's very complicated. There also may be some kind of pricing discount to the. the I mean, the fact that we keep coming back to this, and you know, if you let us, we would talk about it like for five hours. It's not like we're a few obsessed people. People are talking about this, so this may be a turning point in how we do think about it. I mean, it may reignite the drug cost debate. Yes, Sarah, you tweeted something interesting this morning that I hadn't seen before, which is that FDA is actually going to have some kind of meeting where they're going to talk about price, which isn't really FDA's usual thing. Right. So um, Steve Osden at BioCentury tweeted out a story he published yesterday night that FDA has scheduled a private meeting later this month, kind of run by Duke Margulies, where they're going to kind of talk about Alzheimer's therapies and payer 
access and coverage, which FDA, particularly until Scott Gottlieb ran the FDA, FDA just like they always froze up when you brought up drug costs. They said, this isn't our area. That's CMS. We don't consider that. Gottlieb pushed the boundaries a little bit. But what's really unusual is Austin pointed out this meeting appeared to have been scheduled before they announced this drug's approval. And it's private. So you have to wonder, you know, what are they going to be talking about? Because again, FDA likes to say, you know, we don't think about costs. Our job is just to think about safety and efficacy. It would get even more complicated. So you have to wonder, like, are they trying to make some kind of push for coverage here? Um, if they're engaging with private payers, it would be kind of interesting, too, because, again, we know, you know, the Alzheimer's population is going to trend to the Medicare side. So it'll be really interesting if we can figure out what happens at this meeting, because I think a lot of people are a little bit skeptical now about whether FDA is, I guess, acting in good faith here. And of course, another reminder that we still have no nominee for the FDA. I think it's getting increasingly likely that it's not going to be Janet Woodcock, who's the current acting commissioner. I'm, I'm hoping by the next time we meet, maybe we'll have a name. To I mean, if, around. if it wasn't so serious, it would be like, you know, the old Saturday Night Live. I mean, Julie and I are old enough to remember, you know, that, you know, Franco is still dead. It's still it dead. Just, it's yeah. serious because, you know, there are issues like drug approvals, and we're still in a pandemic. So, you know, there's a difference between not having an FDA commissioner in February. I mean, I wasn't alarmed by February, or I wasn't even alarmed by early March, but we're now, it's July. It's July, yeah. And there's not even there's not even a name. There's not even a nominee. All right, well, we, we need to talk about another expensive drug, although not as expensive as this one, which is insulin. For people who can't afford it, even though it's not as expensive, obviously, as this drug, it is still a life-or-death problem. Walmart is now trying to create a market solution. It says it will start selling lower-cost analog insulin, that's the quick-acting stuff, in both vials and pre-filled pens. For people who don't have insurance, Walmart has been selling older versions of insulin at a cut rate for a while, but this is the more advanced formulation, and it will be made uh, in conjunction with Novo Nordisk, one of the the top makers of insulin. Uh, It will sell for less than half the price of its top competitors, but critics point out that there are already lots of programs for people who have to pay cash for their insulin, and that this insulin is still not all that cheap. Could this have an impact on the drug price debate? I think it has an impact around the edges. If you're uninsured and you go to Walmart, you know, it's probably a decent deal. If you have really, you know, lousy insurance and your, you know, either deductible is so high or copays are so high, you'd have to really probably do the math and figure out over the course of the year which way it was better. But And essentially what Walmart seems to be doing is getting the discounts that if you have insurance, your insurance company or your PBM will negotiate with the um, drug companies on the back end so that they and then patients don't pay nearly as much. So again, it's a good deal if you have insurance, but it's likely if you do have insurance on the back end, your insurance company has already negotiated this type of deal for you. So these are kind of these nibbling around the edges solutions that help some people, but they don't get to the fundamental issue of really lowering the cost for everybody and lowering the cost for the entire health system. And, you know, like Alzheimer's, insulin is one of those drugs, I mean, where there's a a fairly large population of people who need it and it's really expensive. And you have the pressure from the patient community here. Yeah. And the diabetes community has been very vocal about this. There's certainly been numbers of stories over the past 
I don't know, it seems like forever now of pe- people rationing insulin, some, you know, very young folks that have gotten off their parents' insurance. I know I've read a story or two about that and have ended up dying because of, they ration their insulin. And if you need insulin, it's not something you should be rationing or really can ration. It's life or death situation very fast. And it's become kind of the poster child for the drug pricing debate because while there have been tweaks over the years to the product, the first insulins are about 100 years old. And the business community, you know, is, was talking about this story as, you know, this is Walmart trying to really get into healthcare in a big way. I mean, we're seeing a lot of these sort of big corporations, CVS, I guess, did it first. And, you know, and now Walmart was, was just trying to do primary care and dental care and now insulin. Kim, you want to say something? Yeah, exactly. Well, I was going to say our readers at Insider are always, you know, clamoring for the next news of how Walmart is going to enter, you know, the healthcare market. Um, They've really, you know, they have all these clinics, they provide low cost dental cleanings, uh, checkups, I think they've even invested in a telehealth. And they're really trying to sort of edge into this industry that is extremely complicated and that others have failed at before. And so it's going to be really fascinating to see, you know, where they're able to make some differences, because obviously we have, you know, this major healthcare cost problem in the U.S. And can a business provide a solution? Um, Or is it really going to come down to, you know, the government stepping in and reining in on these prices? I'm guessing probably both. All right, well, let us move on. Uh, Also back in the news this week, teens and vaping. The state of North Carolina announced a settlement with the makers of Juul that will have the company pay the state $40 million to be used for teen vaping cessation programs and will make a trove of internal documents available to the public starting in 2022. Uh, reminder that Juul is still being sued by another dozen states and the FDA is studying whether vaping is really safer than smoking for people who are trying to quit. Um, is this the beginning of the end for Juul or is this a one-off or do we not know yet? We don't know exactly what happens next, but we know it's not good news for Juul. I mean, they lost, it's a big, it's a big judgment for one state and there are 49 other states and a few territories. Teen vaping is sort of fallen out of the news because of the pandemic. Tobacco in general, it did not go away. I mean, I, I don't, I don't, you know, with kids being stuck at home, maybe it's less um, with kids being and wearing stuck, masks. Right. I mean, who, I don't, <laughs> I don't know. I don't, I don't not have at the tip of my fingers, although it's probably in my email somewhere, you know, the current trends on, on youth vaping, but it is a big public health problem. You know, the industry cannot be happy about the North Carolina case. North Carolina is a traditional tobacco state, you know. North Carolina, Virginia, you know, these are the states that really were the heart of the domestic tobacco industry and and still are to a certain extent, although it's also... Although maybe the tobacco industry is feeling threatened by the vaping industry. Right. They they talk about, you know, the the smoke-free future. That doesn't mean it's a tobacco-free future. So, yeah, I mean, if, if I were an executive at a any tobacco or any vaping company, I would probably not have had a great week. (laughs) All right. Well, one quick follow-up from last week when we talked about Missouri state lawmakers trying to ban certain forms of birth control for women on Medicaid as part of an unrelated fight over a tax that funds long-term care in the state. Well, on Wednesday, the legislature passed a continuation of the tax, which was going to start making cuts today if they hadn't, uh, and without a specific birth control ban. Um, so we, we may come back and talk about that at some point. But that is the news for this week. Now we will play my interview with ProPublica's Marshall Allen, and we will be back with our extra credits.
We are pleased to welcome to the podcast Marshall Allen of ProPublica. If you're even a slightly regular listener, you know Marshall's name. His investigative stories are regularly among our end-of-show extra credits as must-reads. Now Marshall has a new book called Never Pay the First Bill and Other Ways to Fight the Healthcare System and Win. Marshall Allen, welcome to What the Health. Thank you, Julia. It's great to be here. So this book is kind of a compendium of a lot of the advice we've been trying to dole out bit by bit in our KHN NPR Bill of the Month features. Yes. What does it say about the state of our healthcare system that this book even needs to be written? You know, I've thought about that a lot. Americans routinely say that the cost of healthcare is their number one financial concern. So sadly, we're at a state with our healthcare system where there's been a tremendous breakdown of trust. People know that they're not getting a fair deal and they are desperate to know what they can do about it. So it's a really sad situation that we're in in this country where this book even needs to be written. I mean, as you and your listeners are really aware of, we spend probably twice as much per person for healthcare in America than other developed countries. And yet, we still are not having things covered that we need. We're still paying a lot out of pocket. And probably 30 million people are uninsured still. This is just a terrible situation. And a lot of it is because these markups and middlemen have inserted themselves between the clinicians, the doctors and nurses who care for us. And they're extracting all of this money out of the system. And so the book shows the problem, but really I tried to change the focus of the book to more of a how-to guide about what we can do about it. And so I'm trying to equip and empower the patients, so just the individuals who deal with the system, and the employers. I believe that the employers have great untapped power to assert themselves and demand a fair deal for themselves and for their employees. So I'm, I'm really hoping that people will fight back and then they'll have these wins, you know, where they can spend a lot less money and get still get the care that they need. I feel like consumers have been, I don't want to say passive, although I guess that's the right word, you know, since it used to be you do what your doctor tells you to do and that's a good way to be responsible for your health care. That's just not the case anymore, is it? Well, it can't be the case anymore. And I agree that passive is one word that we could use. But I also think another word is, is trusting. We have trusted that no one would ever recommend something that we don't need, or we have trusted that no one would ever overcharge us for something that doesn't have to cost as much as they're telling us it should cost. So we have put our trust in the system, and it's good to put our trust in the medical side with our doctors and our nurses and others who care for us, although even still, we need to be careful that we are scrutinizing the advice they give us for things that could be cases of overtreatment. But our trust has been violated. <laughs> and I think that's the thing. There's this universal sense that, wait a minute, we can't trust the financial side of this system. And so that trust that we've had has caused us to be passive. We've thought that our insurance companies are on our side. But as anybody knows, if they've disputed a medical bill, the insurance company usually sides with the hospital or the doctor. And you find that their loyalty is more to their networks and keeping their doctors and hospitals happy than it is to the members who are funding the entire enterprise. And so I think we know now that there's been this breakdown of trust. And I think there is a hunger and an appetite for people to do something about it. Especially, by the way, not to mention the high deductible health plans that people have been put on, right? So now we're paying more of those dollars, not just in our premiums, but in those 
high deductibles. Yeah. So you start this book off with a successful effort to contest a bill sent to your own parents. Um, Tell us about that just briefly. Like a lot of my peers, I'm now in a position of helping my parents as they get older. My dad has dementia. And so my dad, unfortunately, had an unnecessary examination done on him without my mom's consent. So my dad has dementia. My mom has power of attorney. They did this examination of my dad without even notifying my mom. It wasn't a necessary examination. And then they sent my mom a bill for it. And they also, a separate incident at the same facility, had a medication error where a nurse practitioner approved a refill request for a drug that my dad was not even on. So my dad got put on this drug erroneously. It caused a lot of decline in his dementia. Unfortunately, my mom caught it. They took him off the drug and he bounced back. He, he was okay after he got off the drug. But I had these two incidents As I was writing, never pay the first bill, I had to engage with a bogus medical bill. And I I found it so interesting, right? Because these situations are all around us. I guarantee it's happened to almost every person listening to this podcast. And if it hasn't happened to them, it's happened to their loved ones or people they know. It's just this ubiquitous problem. In fact, I've started comparing it to the pandemic. You know, like COVID-19 gave us all this sense that everybody was in the same situation, working from home, dealing with remote learning with their kids, struggling to know, wearing masks, you know, distancing. We all felt it at the same time. That's a similar situation that we're in with these high healthcare costs. We are all burdened by them. Some people make enough money to afford it, so they just pay more. They go, my, my time is worth more than my money, so I'm just gonna spend extra money. Unfortunately, that's where a lot of our decision makers are and the people who have more influence. But, you know, the typical American family makes $62,000 a year. So imagine that family on a high deductible plan. Deductibles are easily $3,000, $5,000. If you're a family that's making 62 grand a year gross, then you have a deductible of three to $5,000. That's a crushing amount of money. The typical American family has no more than about $400 in their bank account right now. Medical debt as at a high, it's just a, it's, it's a total crisis that we're all dealing with. I love our country and I'm, I'm proud to be an American, but this to me is one of the shames of our country that we have this overpriced system that really is exploiting people's sickness for profit. I have to say, this book is a little bit scary in some ways. It includes sections on dealing with debt collectors, suing in small claims court, and even when not to use your insurance. Um, it feels like we need a business degree just to get basic health care. Are you worried that people will be intimidated by this? It is intimidating, and it's not fair. So here's there's so many things that are wrong that are putting consumers in an unfair position here. It's outrageous that I would write a book where I actually have to have a chapter about how to deal with a medical debt collector when they call, or how to sue in small claims court to defend yourself against unfair practices. These are really effective things, but they are not easy to do. And sometimes even if they're easy logistically, like it's actually not difficult to sue someone in small claims court, but it's very intimidating And it takes a tremendous amount of courage and moxie to actually have the guts to do that. And it is very effective, but this is really intimidating stuff. 
And the argument that I try and make in the book, the what I try and show in the book is that when you fight back, you can win. And there are people who are doing this right now. So what I've tried to do is feature the examples of people who do things differently, who are fighting back and how they're doing it and how they're winning. And by winning, I mean they're saving a lot of money right now on their health care. And for a lot of families, unfortunately, if you're in that position where you're, you have a limited income, you might just need to fight. You might just have to do it or else you're going to go into debt or you might have to find a way out of debt or you might realize that you have to fight your insurance company or maybe your own employer if you're on a self-funded employer-sponsored plan to get them to approve the care that you need. Maybe you're being wrongly denied care. So it is intimidating. It is complicated. But we have nothing to lose. And I kind of look at it like you could be saving yourself hundreds of dollars an hour. So it's I look at it a little bit like I'm paying myself hundreds of dollars an hour to fight these bills by not giving them the money that I've earned. And another thing that I think is important is that sometimes it is actually really easy. So if you know the right things to look for, sometimes it can be super easy. For example, I got a bogus $250 bill from an urgent care center. And I could tell just by looking at it closely that they had not submitted it to my insurance plan. And insurance companies, one thing they're really good at is if you call them and say, hey, did you have this bill submitted to you? They can give you a quick answer to that on the phone. So I called the insurance carrier. They confirmed to me that the bill had not been submitted to them. I called the urgent care. They acknowledged the mistake. They sent it to my insurance plan. Right there in about five minutes, two phone calls, five minutes, I saved $250. So sometimes it's hard. Sometimes it's intimidating. Sometimes you don't win, even after putting up a fight. But sometimes it's really easy and you do win and you never kind of know. <laughs> like there's no guaranteed outcome. So you try all these different routes, you still could end up getting stuck with the bill that they're hitting you with. But you'll lose every battle that you don't fight. And so I'm trying to urge people to show them the leverage points, show them the tactics and encourage them and try and inspire them. Like you can do it or you can at least try. And I still know that most people won't do it. You know, I totally understand that. But then I look at, okay, let's say we have 155 million people covered by these employer sponsored plans. Plus let's say we have another 30 million uninsured. So let's just say we have around 180 million people in this pool. If we had 1% of that total, who had the moxie and the guts and the courage to fight back. And let's say the time too, right? Because it's time consuming. Let's say 1% of those people, every time they went to the hospital, demanded an itemized medical bill with the billing codes so that they could look up the fair prices and see if the bill was accurate or overpriced. If 1% of the people did that to the hospitals in the United States, I think that that would have a big influence if 1% filed cases in small claims court when they were getting ripped off, I think that would have a revolutionary effect. You'd have almost 2 million people filing cases when they're getting ripped off. I think that the healthcare system would be required to treat us with the fairness that we deserve. I think time's going to tell. You know, it'll be very interesting to me to see do people latch onto these ideas? Do they start to put them into practice? I know that many won't, but I hope that some will. Well, Marshall Allen, I'm very sorry that you had to write this book, but thank you for doing it. <laughs> thank you. And thank you for all the work you're doing. I'm a big fan of the work you all do. The Bill of the Month, I think, is a great feature that highlights a lot of these issues. I really appreciate what you guys are doing, and thank you for having me here today. You're very welcome.
Marshall Allen, ProPublica. Okay, we're back and it's time for our extra credit segment where we recommend a story we read this week we think you should read too. Don't worry if you miss it. We will post the list on the podcast page at khn.org. Sarah, why don't you go first this week? So I took a look at a um, New York Times story by Emma Goldberg around Caribbean medical students. It's called It's Tough to Get Out, How Caribbean Medical Schools Fail Their Student. It basically is looking at since the 1970s, I think it was something like 70 or 80 of these schools have proliferated in the Caribbean, um, taking kind of a lot of students who either don't end up getting into U.S. medical schools and Oftentimes, these are for-profit schools. And there's just a lot of questions about how high a quality is the education. And then they're taking a lot of these students' money. And then are they able to actually get jobs and residencies, particularly in the U.S. once they graduate? And that's been a challenge. The flip side of this story, of course, is there's a projected huge physician's shortage in the U.S. and the residency caps and the amount of students we're taking once they graduate medical school to train is a bit sort of artificially capped and probably needs to be raised. So I think going forward, it's a bit of a, can these schools kind of maybe get up to the level we want them to be at so that that these students can get slots in the U.S. and these slots open up? I think there has been this tension between people going to medical schools in the U.S. and going here and how the graduates feel like they're competing against each other when in reality, we actually probably need all of them pursuing their chain to be quality doctors. I'm sure Joanne will remember this too, but in 1997, in a big budget reconciliation bill, that's when Congress put the cap on and what the cap was supposed to be was for one year while Congress worked on an all-payer way to, to fund graduate medical education, to fund these residencies. Right now it's done through Medicare and they wanted it to be broadened and they were going to do it the next year and it's now, what, 24 years later and Congress hasn't done it yet, but the cap is still on the residencies, so... It's, yeah, this is a continuing problem. Kim? Yes, uh, I picked one of mine just because I believe that this topic is so important and doesn't get a lot of attention. The title at Insider is Democrats just unveiled a $400 billion caregiving bill that would supercharge home care and boost pay for workers as 820,000 people wait for help. Um, I had noticed that a lot of the coverage around uh, President Biden's $400 billion caregiving proposal focused on older adults, uh, which it's true would be helped by this bill, but those, the vast majority of those on the waiting list um, for home care are people with intellectual and developmental disabilities. So as part of this story, I spoke with families about what it was like to be on these waiting lists and how difficult it was. One mother uh, basically had to sleep next to her daughter every single night and help her every time she had a seizure, which was every night. Um, so she barely got sleep for three years while she waited for a night nurse. Another family was on the waiting list for 10 years and finally got off the waiting list only to be met with multiple other obstacles not only COVID, but also the fact that it's so difficult to secure an aid for such a long time, given that the pay for these workers is so low. So it's mired with problems. It's something that may or may not make it into the infrastructure bill. It's not in the bipartisan bill. It may be in the bill that you know Democrats put together under reconciliation, but the restrictions of reconciliation make it so that a lot of the things the Biden administration want to do may not be possible. And then there's going to be a lot of jockeying within the Democrat Party over how much to spend and will that whole $400 billion get in there. So that's uh, the piece that I explored, uh, just speaking to different families about their experiences and, and talking about what's at stake for them. 
long-term care always seems to fall by the wayside. Um, it, it made it into the Affordable Care Act and then it almost immediately got made taken it out. out again. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Joanne. Um, there's a blog post in the, in the Incidental Economist, which is a, a, a blog many of us have learned a lot from over the years. It has four co-authors, only three of which I know how to pronounce their names. Um, David Schenker, Barack Richmond, Arnold Milstein, and Kevin Schulman wrote about administrative costs in U.S. healthcare and how to reduce them. Um, and they compared it to what might happen if we did go to a single payer. Um, the caveat is everybody, every economist has their own model different people may come up with somewhat different conclusions, but they said that, yes, a single-payer plan would simplify things and therefore reduce administrative costs. But they actually found that with our current crazy system, you could also even, you could reduce costs even more, administrative costs even more by standardizing and simplifying instead of every single doctor negotiating their own arrangement, which is a huge amount of time and money and eff- wasted effort. If you standardize and simplify things, it would reduce, it, it would bring down costs a great deal. A primary care physician's administrative costs, a one primary care physician per year is about administrative costs is about $100,000. So simplifying and standardizing sounds like a good idea to me, no matter what else we decide to do with our healthcare system in the future. Yeah, one of one of those nerdy things that could actually make a much bigger difference. Than, it didn't have you know, like the than... world's sexiest headline, but it's, it's, <laughs> it's for readers who think it's scary. No, it's short. I mean, for listeners who think it's scary, it's short, it's clear, it's interesting. Yeah, and it's important. Um, all right. Well, I have a radio story this week from KQED Public Radio in San Francisco. Francisco by April Demboski. And in keeping with this week's theme, it's about a very expensive drug. This one for postpartum depression. Two years ago, the FDA approved the first drug to treat this very common and very serious problem. And it's very effective, but it costs more than $30,000 plus the cost of a three-day hospital stay because it has to be administered under close supervision. In California, Kaiser Permanente, no relation to Kaiser Family Foundation or Kaiser Health News, uh, requires women to try and fail on multiple other drugs and electroshock therapy in order to be eligible to receive the drug. This appears to be a violation of both the federal and California mental health parity laws, but KP says its protocols are recommendations, not rules. This is just the latest story that April has done on postpartum depression and its even more dangerous relative, postpartum psychosis. I will link to a couple of them in the show notes. So that is our show for this week. As always, if you enjoy the podcast, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We'd appreciate it if you left us a review. That helps other people find us too. Special thanks, as always, to our ace producer, Francis Ying, who still manages to make us all sound good. Also, as always, you can email us your comments or questions. We're at whatthehealth, all one word, at kff.org. Or you can tweet me. I'm at jrovner. Kim? At Leonard KL. Joanne? At Joanne Cannon. Sarah? At Sarah Carlin. We are taking next week off for the holiday, so we will be back in your feed July 15th. In the meantime, be healthy. Be healthy.